there wasn't a single building that I saw that had a roof on it. They were all burnt out, so therefore the roofs and everything had collapsed. They were just the brick structures, if anything. It was just total devastation across an entire country. Welcome to the podcast where we track down Australian war veterans, have a chat with them and hear their stories. I'm Alex Lloyd and this is Life on the Line. The only thing I was scared of was failing, with letting down the people there that I was supposed to support. Things went south really bad. We've got to have an element of crazy to be good at what we do. There was an ego attached to being a gun fighter. Being around big, tall trees, thick shrubbery, potentially connecting to other moments in his life during battle. You know you're a part of this fight. The story of transformation is powerful. Glenn Azar served in the Australian Army for 17 years, where he specialised as an aviation medic performing aeromedical evacuations in Black Hawk helicopters. He is the founder of Premier Adventure Trekking Company, Adventure Professionals, where he has completed over 60 crossings of the Kokoda Track. Glenn spoke to me about his difficult youth, memorable deployment experiences in Bougainville and Timor, the power of mindset, and the capacity of the human spirit. Glenn Azar, welcome to Life on the Line. Thanks, mate. Tell me about your childhood, Glenn. So I grew up as a you know one of three kids. So I've got an older sister and a younger sister. We we're a military family, so my old man was in the Air Force and then in the Army as an instrument fitter. So we travelled around a lot. So we did the usual sort of two or three year posting cycles and changing states and schools. Didn't have the best connection with my family as a young bloke. And by the time I was sort of fourteen and a half, I'd moved out of home. Uh, my old man had moved down to Victoria at that stage, and we were you know he was in the process of discharging, but. A lot of things, you know, there was a lot of alcohol abuse issues and whatnot and sort of physical and psychological issues going on, I guess, for us within our family. And so, yeah, I moved out of home before I turned 15, which, to be honest, I have no great dramas with. I felt pretty good out living on my own, but having kids of my own now, it would seem bizarre to let them out of the house at 15 and to even navigate the world is crazy. But, you know, that's what I did. So were you just roaming the streets of Melbourne at that age? Pretty much. I was up to some no good. There's definitely up to some no good. I was, um, I wouldn't say I was in with a bad crowd. I was in with some really good kids who are still good mates of mine today, but we all had pretty tough upbringings. So we naturally did what 15, 14, 15-year-olds 15 do, which is make really poor decisions. So you know, I was kind of roaming the streets. Um, I always worked. I was living in an old combi van that I'd bought uh, in the backyard of some people. And I upgraded over about six months and bought a caravan for about 500 bucks. Bearing in mind, I was earning about 100 bucks a week at the time as an apprentice chef. But we got into all the usual trouble. We got into drugs, certainly marijuana, quite heavily, like four or five days a week, speed, that sort of stuff. I was living with some truck drivers, so I had access to, you know, some of their tablets that they would use to keep themselves awake when they're out on the road. And, you know, a little bit of um, theft and that sort of thing, which is funny, you know, that I joined the army later because that's a, such a no-no for us. But just made all the bad decisions that a 14 or 15-year-old with no parental or guiding force is going to make. I feel like I was definitely on a road to ending up in jail. You know, when there's no parameters put around you, you just make really poor decisions. And you don't know they're poor decisions at the time because you're doing what you want to do. Before we move on to how you end up in the army, I just actually want to take a look back at more of that family military history. How far back does it go? And I'm assuming at this age you're describing didn't really mean much to you at the time. 
No, not at all. Like, I didn't have a great connection to the military history. Whilst my, my old man was in the military, there was no, you know, he was in the military during that time where there was no sort of deployments going on post-Vietnam, pre-First Gulf War, um, which was mostly a peacetime army, I guess. But, you know, my grandfather on my mother's side was in the military we had my great-grandfather my great-granduncle right back to the first world war in fact they served in the first world war in the same unit years later i knew this not when i was a young bloke but uh, i've got their medals and one regimental number difference so they were basically enlisted together so we've got a long history that goes right back as far as australian military history goes but i had no connection to that as a young guy it wasn't really spoken about we were I've always remembered being very patriotic as an Australian, but I don't remember really hearing about any of that history until years later when I was in the military. So I never had a great connection to it. I never felt like I have to go and join the army to uphold the family tradition or like none of that stuff ever really crossed my mind. I never even considered joining the army as a young guy. It just wasn't on the top of my head. I, as I say, my first job was to go and be an apprentice chef. And I'm not a great cook these days, but it's something that I thought was my passion back in the day. So you've carved out your own path, but you are having these, shall we say, wayward distractions and potentially heading towards ultimately jail and who knows what other paths you might have gone down. What was it then that sort of reached out and drew your interest in the military? Because that's a quite a sharp U-turn to structure, stability, goals. It is. And I needed that, but probably didn't know I needed it. So... I remember what happened was, like, I was a pretty wild sort of kid. I was into fighting. So as in, I was doing martial arts and stuff. I was getting into fights on the street. I was kind of up to no good. And the first Gulf War kicked off. So that was kind of 1990. All of that started to ramp up. It's the first real military thing I remember, obviously, in my lifetime. So there was nothing really happened for the Australian military through the 80s. So yeah, I remember that sort of firing up and being a young, naive teenager, I thought, I want to go to war. Like that sounded exciting to me. It sounded like that would be an avenue where fighting and being a bit of a wild child would actually pay off. That's in my mindset seemed to be where I thought I'd want to go. So that's where I decided to go. Just quickly, which martial arts were you doing? I was doing karate. So I did a style called Kushindo Kai out of Melton in Victoria. And I did a little bit of contact karate. This was really pre the kickboxing days. I actually won two Victorian titles. Uh, I tried to win the Australian title against a good mate of mine, Kurt, and um, he beat me both times. <laughs> we used to train together, but um, he was just a bit better than me no matter how much I tried to train. And so, yeah, so I enjoyed that. And then I ended up taking up boxing actually after that. I was better at karate but um, and, and kickboxing, but I did I did enjoy the boxing more, believe it or not. Well, I can understand the appeal of both. The boxing is really ripping into each other. The karate, depending on the style, good bare knuckle, full contact work. So both are sort of fulfilling those tendencies and urges, I guess. You just described yourself as a sort of angry young guy, but then those interests get outweighed by the prospect of seeing that first Gulf War and going, well, this army stuff looks all right. Yeah, well, to me, it made sense because I thought I was pretty tough too as a teenager. <laughs> as I learnt years later, it's a different toughness that you have to develop in the military. But you know, I thought I was sort of a bit of a hard guy as a young kid and I was this skinny little 76 kilo sort of weedy. Now I'm like 105. But I just thought it played into the hands of who I perceived myself to be. I had a very tough relationship with my father where I was constantly kind of put down. And, and I think a part of me felt like I had to prove myself and fighting was a good way to do that. Karate fighting, boxing, one-on-one -on -one and trying to beat another person seemed to me to be how I could prove myself. I look at this back now, I'm studying psychology and whatnot, coaching these days. And I look back and I go, well, it was almost trying to prove myself to my dad to prove that I was good enough. So then the opportunity to join the military, I think was another opportunity to go and do that, to go and fight and to prove how tough I was and try and be that sort of alpha male. 
I've done Kyokushin karate for 15 years and I can understand that the martial arts, it is about, it's always chasing self-improvement, self-betterment. You can measure yourself, whether it's just how much success you're having against an opponent in that setting or looking at your techniques in the mirror, are you improving that way? Chasing the next belt is always the next goal to pursue. How does that compare for you, that sort of training, upskilling and that validation, or is that more about the toughness and the self-improvement? Yeah, well, I guess for me, and again, I didn't know what I was getting into when I joined the army, even though I knew my dad was in it, I didn't, we, it's not something we talked about and it's not something I knew much about. So when I joined, I had no idea the personal development journey that you go on in the military. And I think a lot of young guys and girls probably don't realize that, but in the first three or four years, you're on quite an aggressive upskilling program. They're looking for leaders. They're putting you on courses for promotions for, you know, everything from driving courses right through to combat first aid courses. If you're not a medic, because I was an infantry soldier at first, you're constantly learning and it's at a really accelerated pace, particularly in the first 18 months. And you're learning just to have the basic skills to be a basic soldier. It's not like you can fail a course in the army. They make you go back and do it again and again until you get it right. And then after you get it right, you still are practicing that skill because we can't, we can't half have a skill, particularly when, when it comes to the, down the road of being deployed. So they're constantly embedding and re-embedding. And it seems really tough and really aggressive at first, which suited me because I like that tough lifestyle. But it also was what they were really doing was just building layer upon layer of physical and mental toughness on us that you look back on once you've been on a deployment and go, I needed all of that. It seemed almost like bastardization when it was happening sometimes. And I guess it, it's a fine line. But once you get on a deployment, you realize I needed all those layers just to be able to do my job in a really tough environment away from my family for months at a time. Tell me about those first few years you have in the army before your first deployment comes up. So my first few years I joined, I actually unit enlisted the 8-9 Infantry Battalion in Brisbane. And back at that time, it was the first time they trialled a unit enlistment. So two full platoons of us went to Kapuka knowing that we were going to go to 8-9. Now getting a posting to Brisbane in the army, I don't know if it's like that today, but that was like the golden posting, everyone wants Brisbane. So by committing to a battalion, we got to do that. Our staff at Kapuka and our staff at Singleton all came from 8-9. So we we were working with section commanders, platoon commanders, platoon sergeants who were going to be our staff at the unit. So that was really good from that point of view. We kind of had an identity really early. We belonged to someone. For me personally, the military became my family. Whilst I didn't have a great family life and I didn't speak to my family for years after I moved out of home really, the military became that influence for me. They became my family. They became the people that I lent on. And so I was all in. When I joined, I was all in. And all I wanted to be was a gunfighter. I just wanted to be an infantry soldier. But very early on, I broke my leg in two places doing a bayonet assault course. So I just jumped, must have landed wrong in the middle of the, you know, the heat of battle effectively because it's a really aggressive course and you're asked for this aggression and you're doing bayonet fighting and hand-to-hand -hand fighting through this obstacle course. And I just landed wrong and I kept trying to go on. It felt like a bad strain or a bad sprain. So I kept going on and I went up over this next jump and my leg gave out. And I got a mate that years later said to me, I still remember that because he was running behind me. just the way your leg folded. It turned out it was broken in two places. It took like nine months to heal properly. It just didn't heal. And so the army basically said to me, you can't be an infantry soldier anymore because we're not going to sit around and wait forever. I had two options to go to medical corps as an admin. And I hate admin. To this day, I hate admin. So that was never going to happen. And the other one was to be a medic. And I said yes to that, but I didn't want that either. I just, it just didn't appeal to me. But it turned out in hindsight to be the best thing I ever did. I went on to become a very good medic, advanced medic, so what civilians would consider a paramedic. I went on to become aviation medicine qualified as a medic. 
I was in medical corps. I was a physical training instructor qualified. Every course they put me on, I finished on the top of or in the top two or three. I just loved what I did. And I became a very, very good medic for emergency style medicine, which was my wheelhouse, and eventually went on to do a nursing degree. So my first few years were just spent on this roller coaster of leaving the infantry, which I didn't want to do, and then getting thrown into a job I didn't want to do, and then turning out to loving that job that I didn't want to do. I think it made my career longer than what a lot of my mates didn't last as long because infantry is really tough on your body physically, just in training, let alone actually going over to war, I guess. So it was a huge learning curve. It was ups and downs. By the time I became a medic, all of a sudden you're a few years behind on the promotional curve and you've got to start that whole process again. And But I look back on all of that stuff now, the ups and downs really fondly, even the bad stuff. Like there was an ego attached to being a gunfighter, you know, to being an infantry soldier. I wanted to be that guy. And I joined the army as a fighter. That's who I am. And all of a sudden you're a medic and the infantry soldiers who are my mates are bagging you out as a medic because, you know, you're kind of the softer end of the scale in their mind. And that's not true. We just all rib each other, I guess. But certainly, you know, when someone needs a medic, they're not talking badly about them. That's, you know, they're quite a a high and regarded job. But I just know when I first got sent that, I just did not want to do it. And it was like the world had ended because I couldn't be the tough guy that I always thought I wanted to be. As you get more and more into the medic side of things and you find peace with that, had you had other aspirations prior to that, like special forces or something? You've talked about, oh, you wanted to be the tough guy, etc. Did you want to test yourself in that ultimate theatre? It's funny you should say that because I've got a few mates in the SAS at that time or who joined with me who went over. When I was a physical training instructor, I trained a lot of guys up to do past the initial selection course. And I remember one of their RSMs at the time, Al Forsyth, who I ended up working with years later, he would come on these courses and I would be running with people and I would set the 3.2K pace, which is a you know a fully kit loaded run. And I would set the pace and if, I would tell them, as long as you finish in front of me, you'll hit the pass marks. That's so they knew. And I was good at keeping that pace. And he would say to me, mate, why don't you come across and join? But it never interested me. And that was interesting because by then I'm a medic, but also by then I had kids really young. So by then I had two children and I just, I don't know, it just didn't appeal to me. I'm, I'm someone because of my upbringing, I think, I wanted to be close to my kids and a lot of soldiers aren't like that. I was definitely married to the job, I'm not going to lie. And I definitely felt I could have been better in those early years as a father. But when I was home, I really wanted to be fully present. And I know my mates over in the SAS, and this is pre-commandos even existing, but over in the SAS, they weren't home anywhere near as often as even I was. And I just wasn't willing to make that sacrifice. Physically, I felt I was capable because I was training with these guys. Mentally, I think anyone is capable, providing you want to be there. And that's my knowledge and experience working with these guys for years and specializing in aviation medicine was a specialty in its own right it was a pretty tough job it was hard to get on through those courses and you had to be really good so you were still a specialist but just not in that warrior sort of way had I not injured myself had I stayed an infantry soldier would that have potentially happened sliding doors who knows possibly but I know by the time I became a medic and and was posted up to Townsville I just felt and I had kids I just felt differently about that stuff like we had kids really young which I've always enjoyed because it means I got to do cool things with them. But yeah, I just didn't want to be away all year, all the time as a result of that, I guess. I didn't want to repeat what I'd felt I'd went through growing up. You found yourself walking on a different path. And once you got over the initial not wanting to be there, you realized you were quite happy to keep walking that way. Yeah, this is sound as a bizarre sort of reference, I guess. But Steve Jobs once talked about the fact that you can't join the dots in life going forwards. You can only join them going backwards. And his example was that he was kicked out of Apple whilst he still owned a percentage, but he was kicked out of actually running the show. And he was really annoyed. And he, whilst he made lots of money, it wasn't about the money. He was annoyed that he'd been kicked out of the thing that he started. So he went out and he started two other, or he financed two other companies 
companies and was actively involved. One of those was Pixar, which made Toy Story and really became the forerunners of all that animation. Anyway, he, he then says that looking back at his life, creating Pixar gave him access to all these creatives, which he wasn't. And that if it wasn't for Pixar, the iPhone wouldn't exist. All the creative side of iPhone came from that. So I look back and think, had I not broken my leg, I wouldn't have been forced to become a medic. I then wouldn't have ended up doing aviation medicine. I wouldn't have then ended up doing a nursing degree. I wouldn't have ended up doing some amazing things overseas and literally getting to save lives of people in third world countries. So joining the dots going backwards, and even today, which I'm sure we'll come to, but what I do for work now is directly related to my, the fact that I was an aviation medic. If I hadn't have broken my leg, which was the end of the world for me at the time as a 19-year-old, none of that would have happened. So when I joined the dots going backwards, yeah, it all makes sense. And this is meant to have happened for me. But yeah, if you told me that at 19, this is going to be the best thing that ever happens to you, probably would have punched you in the face. After seeing the first Gulf War on the news and that initial inspiration to join up, you finally get to fulfill your desire to deploy when you're sent to Bougainville. Yeah, so my first deployment was in 1998 and I went to Bougainville, which is in the North Solomons. And they'd been, I didn't know much about them and I think not many Australians would have, but they'd basically been at war with PNG for like 25 years. So the whole country was pretty much destroyed. They had no medical facility there. So we went in and set up, well, actually the Kiwis went in the year before us and then we took over from them in 98. Uh, and that was mostly a financial decision because, you know, the Kiwis couldn't afford to keep running this operation back in the day. So we go in and we we run a thing called the combined health elements. So we had, you know, surgeons, we had civilian surgeons who would volunteer their time, which is pretty cool, giving back. And they would come in two weeks at a time. And then I was a medic. This was before I became a nurse. And we would run evacuation helicopters and ambulances all around the country. And we were doing some crazy things. We were delivering babies like you wouldn't believe. I can't remember the exact number, but I think 36 or 39 babies on my period of time that I was there that we delivered. Again, because we're the only medical facility. But I did a few cases that really taught me a lot about life that I look back on. And there was one case where we had this young guy, Sylvester, and I've still got photos of him. And this is pre-digital photos day. So this is the old film camera, but I've still got them. And this guy was um, shot three times through the chest with an M16 and survived, which is amazing. And he's a local guy and he comes in and we don't have blood banks available to us, of course. So we're giving blood in the field and it's stored for whatever period of time it can be. Now, I happen to match Sylvester. So they give two units of my blood to him because no one else nearby matched him. Now, normally you give one unit of blood if you're donating blood. That's 490 mils. So I'm giving a whole litre of my blood to this guy. And I'm bulletproof. I think I'm this tough guy, but it knocked me for about four to six weeks. I really struggled to have my energy. We're in really high humidity, but he survives. So that was kind of a cool story that I was able to be a part of that. And then we nursed him through that. And I remember we were giving him Panadol post being shot three times and having surgery. We removed his spleen and everything. I remember women coming in, you know, having cesareans and being on Panadol because they had never had pain relief. So Panadol was effective enough. And we had to be careful not to give them drugs we would use in Australia that they weren't used to over there like even antibiotics we couldn't give them high grade like we use because there was a risk of us creating a superbug by then giving them something so we started a lot lower grade stuff that probably wouldn't work in australia I remember having a guy who rowed a boat five hours from an island with a collapsed lung. He'd been stabbed in his lung. One lung collapsed fully and he rowed a boat for five hours to get to us. We're the only medical facility around. And one of my young diggers at the time said, how could he possibly do that? Like, how is that physically possible? And I said, well, his other option was to lie down and die. And we don't know how many people tried to get to us who maybe didn't, but he gets in a boat. He knows there's a medical facility with doctors and nurses that might be able to help him. So he just starts rowing to this island to get to us. Now he could have died along the way and we never would have heard that story, but he makes it. He gets to us and he lives because we do have the facility there. 
I had a lady that walked like 40 Ks with a broken foot to get treatment who was 39 weeks pregnant. Again, people go, how can they do that? Well, what was her other option? We're the only people around that were able to help her. And I found that to be a really profound experience for me. Now, this is pre-internet days. The internet was just starting. I went to headquarters and I saw the internet for the first time in 98. I saw newspapers. It was taking us six weeks to get mail. But back then, in at head office, you were seeing newspapers. And I came home and said to my wife at the time, we've got to get a computer. There's this internet thing and people were able to get emails because it was all Hotmail back then was new. And I was just explaining and it seemed almost unrealistic, like this isn't real, but it was. What I learned most over there is just how tough it was for people to live in third world countries and just how good we have it in Australia. That was the first thing. Secondly, I learned what we can and can't do without, like on an eight month deployment and taking six weeks to get mail from home, not having all the, the mod cons, you know, seeing the way other people were living, knowing that we could make a difference. That was one of the best things I learned. As soldiers, we make a difference. There's no doubt. There are some deployments we go on where we're not sure if we're making a difference, but I do think in hindsight of my career, we do. But as a medic, at least, you know, or nurses or doctors, at least you can see the physical and mental changes you're making in people's lives, even when you can't speak their language. Just the joy on people's faces. We had a young kid who got hit in the neck when mum and dad were just cutting the lawn with his big six foot knife and then he's walked up behind and they swung it and hit him in the neck. We did a medical evacuation. It ended up in all the news in Australia because it was such a big deal at the time. And I remember I was just reading a journal like, about a week ago, reading about that story. And like, that's pretty cool that kids like that would have died if we weren't there. And in those countries, that's just life too. But the fact that we were able to save them was absolutely amazing. And I came back from that experience a very different person and very much, whilst I'd already enjoyed being a medic, I was only a medic four or five years at that stage. That was when I probably really fell in love with it and thought, well, we make a difference here. You don't have to be the tough guy gun-toting all the time to make a difference to people. And that's one of the best experiences that I'd had in my military career. It's not just the difference you're making saving those people's lives, which is extraordinary, but just what you've learned about the capacity of the human spirit, what human beings are capable of, and what resilience levels we can build when we change our world perspective, when that's all you know. If you've been stabbed in the chest and you have to row five hours for help, that's all you know, that's all you got to do, fine do it that's amazing yeah the human spirit is amazing it's we're capable of so much more than we realize i know i look at what they were doing over there because that was only option and the other option was to die but i also look at us in this day and age and i you know i love our military history and people talk about soldiers the first world war and soldiers of the second world war and they and i've heard this throughout my career that we're a softer society today and we couldn't stand up and do what they did back then but in my experience of deploying around the world with young soldiers when people are asked to step up they do. And I think Australians are still as tough today as they ever have been. It's just that we don't have to be. And I get that society is softer and people might disagree with me on this point, but I've seen time and time again when young people have had to step up in, in some pretty drastic circumstances they have. So there's truth in that old idea that, you know, until we're tested, we don't know how deep we can go. And, but often when we are tested, in my experience, people still have that within them. Seeing that and having that experience in other countries definitely shows you what you are capable of as well. But you've got to be tested sometimes to actually know that, I guess. It's not too long to wait until you get to deploy again. But before we talk about your Timor trip, it is two deployments back to back. And you've alluded to you have a young family at this point. 
How's that affecting that family life, which you are valuing due to your own experiences when you were young? Uh, yes, yeah, so it definitely had an effect. So to go back one step, I guess, my wife was also in the army. She spent nine years in the military. So when I went on that first deployment to Bougainville, she was still in. That was really tough because we were both at two different units and both units. So the, our kids were born in sort of 95 and 96. And so I'm on deployments in 98 and 99. Even when we go out bush, each unit would say, that they would give ground. So only one of us would get deployed or only one of us would go out field. And then numerous times with the field stuff, they kept trying to send us both away because no unit would want to give up their member because back when I was in the army, I'm sure it's changed a little bit now, but there was this old sort of joke slash saying semi-serious that if we wanted you to have a family, we would issue you one. Everything you need to do this job, you're issued with. And we didn't issue you with the family, so that's on you. But we didn't have any support network. We had no family up in Townsville. So if we both went out field, for example, and we had to hire a babysitter full-time, 24 hours a day, and bearing in mind as young soldiers, we were on about $30,000 a year each, it just wasn't possible for us to afford that. So she ended up getting out of the army and going to uni instead, which definitely helped. But it was tough for me because I loved the army. I loved it. I would go on every deployment that would be made available. I'd go on every field phase that would be made available. I remember my wife would say, I'd come back from a field trip on a Friday night. I'd get a week off and my lieutenant would ring me up. This is when I was a corporal and say, oh, look, someone's unwell or not able to go field on Monday, which is the next day. Are you able to go? And it might be a month. And I'd go, yeah, I'd go. And then they would ring me because they knew I'd always say yes, because I loved what I did. I was definitely married to it. And then she would say, I'm sure you volunteer for this stuff. And I didn't, but I would never say no either because I viewed that that's what you joined the army for. And then when I went on deployments, it paid me off. But when you get home, I guess what you probably forget at that age is that even at one and two and two and three, kids started to relate you putting on your uniform to you going away for a long period of time. And I remember coming home from a deployment. I was home two weeks, had two weeks fully off. And the first time I put my uniform back on, I was just going to work for the day. One of my daughters in particular was only like three years old, I think at the time. And she clung on to me and did not want to let go and was crying because in their mind, they're probably thinking, you're going away for another eight months. They don't know. And I was just going to work for the day. So I probably didn't give that the weight I could have or should have at that age because I'm a young guy. I'm in my 20s. I'm living the life I wanted to live, which was doing what I wanted to do, serving our country, being in the military. I loved all of that stuff, but I was very conscious. And I look back on later years and I don't regret anything I did in the military. And I don't regret how I've been as a parent. I think for the most part, I've been really good or as good as I could be. But there are a few little tweaks and changes. I'm sure we all admit we, there's probably a few, you know, one month field trips I could have said no to and someone else could have done. Definitely had an effect, even if you don't realize it at the time. But it's easy to make those observations in hindsight. You came back from Bougainville super energized and even more in love with your job. When do you find out you're going to Timor and what's your reaction? Just sheer enthusiasm? What I did first was this was our final year of being posted. So when I say we, there was myself and a few mates and we were all medics and running physical training for our battalions and other battalions. And we're all in our final year of a sort of four and a half year cycle up there. We'd had sort of back-to-back posting. So we said, let's do something really epic before we leave. And we decided to run, and I'm no runner, but we decided to run in a relay style format from Townsville to Brisbane. And we wanted to raise money for SIDS. And again, this is really pre-internet. And we ran, and our commanding officer was really big on charity. So he backed it and he gave us vehicles and fuel. We had to fundraise everything else. And we ran from Townsville 
all the way to Brisbane, took us two weeks, and we rattled buckets, and we raised $20,000, which was a lot of money at the time from rattling buckets, and we raised it for SIDS, and we nearly killed ourselves in the process because there was only four of us, and at one stage, two of them were injured, so it was just me, who's not much of a runner, and another guy doing all the Ks, and it was just murder. And our permit said we could only run at uh, in the daytime, but we couldn't fit it in, so we started running through the night as well just to try and get it finished. When we got home, our commanding officer gave us two weeks off and we thought we needed it, our bodies needed recovery. And I distinctly remember I went out on a Saturday, so I'd been home maybe 24 hours. I went out on the Saturday with the kids and my wife and we went shopping and we're in a shopping centre in Townsville and I got a phone call because we're ready deployment and they said, you know, we were standing the battalion too and in fact the whole brigade stood too. Now sometimes they would go through these stand-tos just as a practice for the ready deployment and you'd get to any different level. So if the battalion was just standing you too, you don't know that, you just come in and do your bit and then they'd stop it and the commanding officer would then break down and go right where were the holes where could we do things better if it was a brigade level then of course all the battalions would stand to and then the brigade commander would do that we get there and find out oh no it just seemed more serious this time so all of a sudden there was mobile phones were kind of new then so they called us in as, as section commanders and said we need to take all the mobile phones off all your soldiers and i thought okay that's unusual we don't normally do that so we went and take all the mobile phones off them then we got told not where we're going, but what the task is. And so we're going in looking after nationals in this country. And you still used to get this information when you're doing pretend stand twos. So you're going in and this is what we're going to be doing. We're going to be there for 30 days. Got us to select ammunition and stuff. Now, normally we never got to the stage of actually selecting ammunition when we're just doing a normal stand to and given live ammunition. So what weapons did you want? Additional weapons in your section? What grenades, all that sort of stuff? You know, what, what was the makeup of you wanted your section to have? And I remember thinking then... This is pretty serious, so this might be real. Because my Bougainville deployment, I had like a month's notice. I knew I was going. And pretty much within sort of 48 hours, we are on our way. So I remember feeling nervous, excited, probably more excited if I'm really honest. I remember sitting in the back of, of a Herc, I think it was, with a really good mate of mine, Richie, and he'd been over at the regiment and in other places. And he was really nervous and was sitting there and he said, are you nervous? Or I said, no, I'm really excited. And he said, what do you mean? And I said, well, you know, I view this as this is our opportunity to represent our country. I'm not going to go to the Olympics and, or represent our country in any sport. And I'm not going to be a politician. As soldiers, this is like the ultimate our country has asked something of us and we get the opportunity to deliver that. And so I was really excited by that. And I guess the downside to it all was we didn't know how long we were going to be there for. We were told first up it was going to be 30 days, guaranteed, 30-day turnaround. We get in, we do the job. When we went in, there had been elections there. The federal police had been looking after those elections and it all went belly up. Nothing to do with the federal police. They were unarmed. They were just kind of observers. And so when the riots went through with the election and people were mass murdered, like it was incredible if people studied the history on Timor, the federal police were locked down in a compound. They needed to be rescued because they were unarmed. And so we were going in kind of to save our own people as much as to protect the country we were going to. We knew very little about Timor. I've done a lot of research on it since coming home, but we knew nothing about it going in. Didn't even realise how close it was to Australia, what had been going on for the 25 years prior. But we knew our mission and we were pretty excited and we were fully kitted up. Whereas when I went to Bougainville, we were a peace monitoring group going into under Interfet. We were there for the business. We were there to do exactly what we trained to do for the last 10 years and exactly what we were paid to do. And, and I was pretty excited by that. We've interviewed on this podcast before a Vietnam-era SAS veteran, and he went through that, fine, no dramas, more or less. He then later was in the AFP, and he was in that exact situation you're describing in Timor, and he had issues arising from that, being unarmed, being powerless to help, and in that quite confronting situation. But it's often overlooked in the shadow of Afghanistan and Iraq in this century. I do a lot of work 
with Afghan vets now and I've got a huge amount of respect for them and I've got mates who've done all of those tours. But you're right, Timor does tend to get overlooked. There was a lot of mental health issues came out of Timor. So we went into the country. I actually was running uh, or part of running an evacuation cell. So we had two helicopters, six ambulances that we ran around the country. I was fortunate enough to fly around the country when we very first landed in Dili, obviously being in the medical evacuation teams. And the thing that struck me first was that when the militia pulled out of Timor, they literally destroyed the place on their way out. So they pulled out because we were coming in and they didn't want a direct conflict with us at that point, but they burnt everything to the ground. When I flew over, I remember remarking or writing in my journal at the time that there wasn't a single building that I saw that had a roof on it. They were all burnt out. So therefore the roofs and everything had collapsed. They were just the brick structures, if anything. There were expensive, looking at one stage hotels that had all been burnt to the ground. It was just total devastation across an entire country. And that really struck me when we first got there. When we landed in Dili, there was literally no people there. Nobody. Everyone was up and we find out later we were up in the hills hiding. And they've been fighting this war on a militia style of fight for 25 years. So everyone's living out in the sticks and avoiding fighting the insurgents, which were effectively the Indonesians at the time. So we go in and we take over plots of land and slowly take over Dili. And then I jump on a boat with my team and we head up to Suai. We're on the HMAS Tobruk, which ironically, my grandfather on my mother's side had sailed on the Tobruk. Obviously, it's reconditioned um, numerous times through those years, but he'd sailed on that in the Second World War. And I'm on the same boat. So she's a rickety old thing, but it's you know reconditioned, but it's still the same boat. And we sail all the way up to Suai and we do a, what was then the biggest beach landing had been done since the Second World War. We put two and a half thousand soldiers down on that beach and then took over because that's right on the east-west border. And we spread into Suai and then all the way down through the country from there. I was proud of that. I was, again, still nervous. We were still, this was the first time we were putting a lot of things into practice that we'd learnt for years. You spend in the military years and years practicing to do your job. And some people spend whole careers never getting to actually do their job. Whereas we were now putting all this stuff into practice. And the only way you can truly refine a skill is by doing it. I did a heap of things. One, controlling the, you know, all of our evacuation cells. I remember three RAR got pinned down at one stage. They had landed in a village high up in the mountains outside of Suai somewhere. And we got calls saying that two of them had been hit. So this was all of a sudden really real to us where Australian soldiers have been shot. And you go, wow, like this is, this is not a Bougainville deployment now where we're in helping the locals who kind of wanted us there. This is, this is a war zone effectively. And certainly nothing near the war zone that we were to see later on with Afghan, but it's a war zone nonetheless. So we send in three choppers on the medic on the middle chopper. And then the chopper either side of that, we've got some SAS blokes who were going to go in and try and track down these guys shooting at us because it was a small group shooting from a hillside. Now, they were too far away to do direct shots. So they were lobbing rounds into the village and two of our guys just happened to get hit. Like it's kind of an unfortunate incident, but they were far enough away that they couldn't shoot back. So they were just kind of sitting ducks and having to lock themselves down. So I flew in. These two choppers did this outside circle and just kind of strafed the hillsides. We landed our chopper. I had three guys end up coming on board because one guy had broken his leg, falling off the side when he was diving for cover. And I remember the medic, I don't know the medic dropping them off because it was a hot zone. So the medic from 3R just literally launched these people on. It's not like the ambulance where you sit there and you get a piece of paper and have a full handover. It's kind of like, these are yours and off you go. So we land, like literally hot land, three people on board and we take off. I run into that guy maybe 18 months later out at Oki, which is an aviation base sort of west of Brisbane. And he said to me, do you remember me? And I said, no, because, you know, he had a helmet on, so it was just his head. But he said, I kicked three patients onto your, a chopper of yours when I was with 3RER in Timor. So he remembered me and I hadn't remembered him in such a quick environment. 
So we did that. Uh, we did a lot of local help. We helped Medicine Dumondo set up hospitals so that they could take on some of the patient load. We did a lot of local patients with all, like old gunshot wounds that they'd just let fester for months as a militia had left. A lot of malaria. Malaria there was just rife. And then I actually started to go out and work with an international team, basically finding bodies of people that had been killed by the militia. There was military police in these teams. I can't remember the whole makeup, but there was military police and medics and doctors and a whole team would go out and they would speak to the locals. We would get told where there was bodies and we'd go out and find these bodies. And then we'd basically conduct, well, not me, I was doing the medical side of identifying bodies or body parts because sometimes they were just skeletons. Other times they were whole bodies. The military police would do interviews and basically do like a crime scene. And that was set up for the International War Tribunal. So, you know, eight-figure grid references to what was found and what the incidents reported were. And the eventual aim of that was that if they find someone that they can hold accountable, they would go to a war tribunal. I don't believe that ever happened, but we did that for oh, six weeks. And obviously, you don't keep count of the jobs you do. You're just out doing jobs all day. But when I was leaving the country, they in our psych debrief, they told us that it was like 50 two or 54 bodies that I was directly involved with. It didn't really have an impact on me at the time, I don't think. You know, I just viewed it as a medic, we're doing our job. I think it would have had a bigger impact if I was dealing with injured Australian soldiers in Australian uniform. I think that would have definitely affected me more on a psychological level, you know, definitely. What probably did affect me the most, if I'm really, really honest, and something I didn't deal with well and didn't tell anyone about for a long time was dealing with kids dying. So I had a few instances, some were just car accidents, which a, car, a single vehicle car accident in places like Bougainville and Timor, when I dealt with kids in both, could have 20 people involved. We'd get called out to a single vehicle accident, but you don't know how many people were sitting in or on that vehicle. So you were dealing with infants and young children that were killed and you, you could do nothing to save. You had an ambulance, sometimes two ambulances and not much gear for 20 people and you're just trying to reverse triage and save people. I had kids under four years of age at the time. Both of my girls were like two and three. I found when I got home, I was really emotional around that stuff. Even in country, I started to notice I wasn't handling that very well. You know, there was an incident I never, I've never told anyone about actually to this day, but I remember... I was at Maliana. We're inside a safe compound and I dealt with a few dead children in that period of time and it really kind of rocked me and it rocked my, I don't know if it's my confidence or my, just my belief in the world, I think, of, of how unfair the world can be. And I remember one night, I don't drink. Since having joined the military, I never did drugs, which obviously I'd done as a young teenager, um, but I don't drink and it's not my body's a temple or anything. It's just not something I enjoy from my upbringing, I guess. But I remember sitting and making a similar, I think, a bad decision one night and I took methoxyfluorane, which is a drug, the green whistle you see people given, and it's for broken arms and that sort of stuff, and it gives people an immediate sort of, it's like a marijuana type high, just to stop the pain. The reason we use it is that it wears off really quickly, so then if we take them in an ambulance to surgery, they can still have surgery. But I remember you normally one vial, maybe two of those, and that's the maximum you can give someone because it's a pretty heavy sort of hit. And I remember taking like four or five of those in one night and so if i'd been called on to be help someone medically i would not have had the capability to do it i didn't get caught and i was a section commander but i remember waking up in the morning and being really disappointed when i realized how many i had used and i'd never done it before or since but it was me trying to cope with some of the things that i was experiencing over there and i was always a pretty alpha sort of guy so i had young medics working under me you know males and females teenagers you know through to early 20s and i was kind of the tough guy i always was a tough guy i was always stoic if you needed someone reliable i was the guy that you could call on and so i just made a really bad decision that you know if someone had needed my help that 
night, I would not have been any good to them. And to be honest, I could have been charged and discharged from the army for that at the time. It was a pretty bad incident. But I look back now and go, I understand now why some people resort to drugs and alcohol to deal with situations. It didn't help. I was more disappointed in myself. But for that night, it numbed how I felt and the things I'd experienced that day in particular, which was a tough day where I dealt with a couple of children. And that's the thing that affected me the most, actually, when I was over there was just dealing with children, to be honest. You mentioned it rocked your faith in the world a bit. Did it make you question what you were doing or did it actually give you a greater sense of purpose that although I haven't helped these children, I can still be making a difference in uniform and in the job I'm doing? It actually gave me a greater sense of purpose for why we were there and to do as much good as we could do in that country while we were there. So I remember sitting around in that same place and by now this deployment had gone on for longer than the 30 days we were told it would go and now it kind of became all right we'll go home before Christmas which became we'll go home after Christmas no one really knew and it was just kind of dragging out and we weren't really sure and I guess from our point of view I was sitting around and there were a few soldiers younger soldiers saying well they wanted to go home and there was kind of like their first big deployment they were young they didn't view it as being you know this is a privilege I guess because they're new in the army but people that have been in the army a long period of time are kind of like deployments don't come along that often back then obviously we've been on a heavy deployment schedule since then but back then they were few and far between and so this was a privilege for us as soldiers to get to do our job and I remember them saying they wanted to go home or we should get paid extra for being over here and I said no I don't which we were but I think I disagreed I, I said we get paid to do this job and I've been paid to do this job for 10 years but I really only had to do it for 14 months when I count my two deployments so I viewed it differently to them and I guess I was pretty wary and gung-ho back then and I was all about the military I was disappointed in myself, but it strengthened my resolve to be really good at what we were doing over there. And the fact that in Timor, we were making a difference. Like in a lot of countries, people get deployed to half of the locals don't want you there and half of them do. And I know that to be true of Afghan with all my mates who've been deployed there is the tough thing for them was some people just didn't want them there, even though they were trying to do good. Whereas at least in Timor, the people wanted us there. They loved us being there. We were the white knights on the big shiny steed sort of thing. We were the guys looking after them. And so that gave us a sense of purpose that we were wanted. We were making a difference. And that's not always the case when you go to, to war in different countries, I guess. All of that is a long way of saying it strengthened my resolve to be better at what I do and to never make that decision as a way out because had I been called upon that night, someone else may have died because I wasn't in a frame of mind or the state to be able to actually help them. So I was effectively risking people's lives by the decision I made. So that's what stopped me doing it again, I think, in hindsight. Whereas I can also see that slippery slope where people can, I did feel the escape for that period of time. It's a drug that's well controlled, but when you're in deployments, of course, there's so much going on that it's not as well controlled. So people can get away with things and you could see how that could have easily become a slippery slope that turned to alcohol, drugs or other things when I got home. I look back now and I was aware enough to know that it wasn't a good decision had someone have died on that watch when I was in that condition, then I would have blamed myself because I, I made a decision that then stopped me being able to do what I was there to do. So I think overall, it gave me the resolve to do my job even better. You get back from Timor, you do the nursing degree you've alluded to earlier, and then in the early 2000s, you start doing Kokoda trips while still in the army. Talk to me about how these Kokoda treks came about and why you eventually left the army in 2009. Yeah, so I come home and I do the nursing degree and how that came about was I delivered some babies on my own in East Timor and I had no experience. Like, as the army back then was training us for 18 to 35-year-old relatively fit guys and girls because that's the majority of the army. You're training to work on each other. And I remember getting called into this hut. We were out on a patrol and I've got the Red Cross on and I'm the only medic there and this lieutenant pulls me up and said, there's a woman having trouble at childbirth. Can you help her? And I'm like, 
I don't know what I'm doing, but I'd seen my two girls born. So I go in and I do my best. The child was actually had already passed before. So there was just an arm hanging out and it was dislocated at the shoulder and it was cold. I'm talking to a doctor on a sat phone. We do all the checks we can and we realize the baby's dead. So then it just becomes about taking the baby out. But I remember how out of depth I felt and how scared I felt. No one spoke English. My tetan was pretty average and everyone was looking at me. And I remember thinking, like, because I've got a red cross, I don't know if they think I'm a doctor or, but I don't, I don't know what I'm doing in this environment. Can deal with a, any other sort of wound. So when I got home, I initially wanted to be a physiotherapist because I was a physical training instructor. But the army said, would you consider doing a nursing degree? And I thought, yeah, I want more skills than what I've currently got. So next time I do get deployed, I've got more to offer because I felt out of my depth in that particular incident. And there was a couple of those childbirth incidents. So I come home and I do the nursing degree, fully paid for by the military. Through that period of time, I've got a lot of time off because there's, you know, a lot of uni holidays and stuff. And a couple of guys, particularly this guy, Al Forsyth, and Al was a long-term veteran. He was a Vietnam veteran. He did 35 years in the army. He spent 22 of those at the SAS. He ended up being the RSM there. So he's a really experienced guy. And I'd worked with Al's brother in the army as well years earlier. And he rang me up and said, we're doing Kokoda. And back then, Kokoda was pretty raw. So these guys had started doing them at sort of 99. Weren't many people doing it. They were taking all of the executives of one of the top banks over. And they said, because of that, um, they were doing like a leadership style program and it was expanding and expanding and expanding to the point where we want to do something big. So we want to take them to Kokoda. They had to put all these safety measures around. So they didn't contact me directly at first. They just put a shout out to the military and said, we're looking for aviation qualified medics who might want to lead this. And I'd been given a heads up. So I said, I'll do it. And I went back to my boss and said, can I go on this trip? Um, now, what the Army is really good at in medical corps is they want you to maintain your skills. So when we're not deployed, we can't just sit around for a year or two years or three years and not be doing our trade as nurses or doctors or medics. So if there's an opportunity to go and work with the ambulance, they'll let you or go and work in hospitals, they'll let you. You just apply for it. And those, whoever you go to work for, still pays you, but they actually pay the Army. And then the Army just pays you your normal wage, but you're getting your skills. So I said, can I go on this trip? It's an opportunity to go out into the jungle, potentially, you know, I don't know what medically what's going to happen out there, but I'm there in case it's needed. So they said, yes, these guys were then able to say, we've got a current army aviation qualified medic coming out with us, who's rotary and fixed wing aeromedical evacuation trained. So I go out on this trip. I remember being out there and walking with these guys and I hadn't really dealt with civilians since I joined the army. I was largely entrenched in the military way of life. And I remember being with these guys and they just loved all of the military stories that we had and they loved being around us. They had no idea what we do. Like a lot of these guys were kind of had this idea that we all live on a base and we're not allowed out in the real world. You know, it's kind of break the glass in case of war sort of thing. And I said, no, we, we shop at the Coles and we, we do all the normal stuff that people do and we live in the community with people. They just didn't really understand us. They were quite, they loved it. They loved our stories. But I remember walking along and thinking, I could do this for a job. This is pretty cool. Not thinking I would necessarily. But years later, I did those a couple of times a year. There's a couple of things. I started to become disillusioned with the military. I have this idea that as soldiers, there's an old saying in the military that ours is not to question why, ours is but to do or die. And what it means is if the army asks us to go and deploy into a country, we go and deploy into a country and we do the job that we're tasked to do. But we don't have the right to say, well, politically, should we be here? And now I get as humans, and particularly as we age, we start to have political thoughts. I used to say to my soldiers, as soon as you feel that you have a political 
ideology that says we shouldn't be in this country, I think you need to get out of the military because you become dangerous to the people around you if you start to go, I don't feel like we should be here. And you're totally entitled to those feelings, but you become dangerous to the people around you if you're not fully committed. And I started to feel that's where I was at. Not that I didn't want to deploy to any of my deployments, but more that, well, there was an incident in particular where our foreign affairs minister at the time was negotiating in Timor. This is two years after Interfet about whether this gas pipeline going through Timor. And basically there was a bit of an underhanded threat saying, if we don't get 50% of this gas pipeline that we want, then, you know, we may pull our soldiers out. And I remember being quite disgusted in that because it was almost like saying, we pull our soldiers out, then you have to fend for yourself. The militia comes back in, takes over your country and you're back where you were, or you give us what we want. And it was the first time I felt that we are pawns as soldiers. Now, maybe we are. There are people out there that say, yes, of course, you're a political tool of some level, but I'd never felt that way in the previous 12 or 13 years of my career. So to all of a sudden be watching this guy on the news basically threatening to pull us out, and I thought of all the good work I felt we did, are we just a political pawn? That's terrible. And I'd done a lot of research into the 25 years preceding Interfet and the way we had treated Timor as a nation, and we weren't great to them. I did an assignment at university from 1975 to 2000, Australia's involvement in East Timor, and it was quite disgusting. And I'm glad about what we did, don't get me wrong. I'm proud of what we did. But what we did in the 70s and the 80s was terrible. We kind of sold them down the river. And I remember reading that and starting to really be disillusioned and disappointed. And then I started thinking, you know, maybe I could do this trekking or something else. Maybe I'd never thought of life outside the army. And there's a few reasons. I got offered a couple of deployments to Afghan, funnily enough, while I was at uni. And even after I got out of the army and I said, no, because you're like a retired boxer. You always think you've got that one more fight in you. And, And we love the medals that we get to collect, not for putting medals on our chest, but for what they represent, the opportunity to have presented our country. Or for me personally, anyway, I've got a lot of pride in those. Even though I don't wear them a lot, I have a lot of pride in having them. And so the chance to collect that one more medal, I think, is like a retired fighter, the chance to have that one more fight. And so, you know, I just started being a bit disillusioned. I've got a young son who's intellectually impaired and has autism and I, uh, as well as his intellectual impairment. And so he's 16 now, but he's got a mental age of like five or six. And I remember thinking, I can't afford to be killed in another country, even in service of my country, because this young guy needs me here forever. The thought of dying or had never crossed my mind before. I'm not that I was unaware that that can happen to us as soldiers, but it never concerned me. I don't know why I never really considered it with my other kids because I thought they'll grow up and they'll get to fend for themselves and they'll, he doesn't have that opportunity. And that, you know, that just is what it is. So all of these things started to add up for me to the point where in 2009, after 17 years, I decided to get out of the full-time army. I did go to the emergency reserve, but I never did any reserve time after that. So my whole 17 years was spent doing full-time service. I was very, very proud of everything I did. I did everything to the best of my ability always. And I still do that today because I believe that wherever you are, you should be there fully. But I just knew that I wasn't where I needed to be fully anymore. And I actually had a conversation with a full colonel from Canberra because they were trying to convince me to stay in because of all the knowledge that I had built up, the experiences, the uh, qualifications I now had as a registered nurse and qualified. And they wanted me to stay in for all those reasons. So I had a couple of people lower ranked than him try and get me to stay in. But when he spoke to me and he asked me, we just had a conversation, which was unusual for you know a young guy to be having a conversation with a full colonel. And I just said to him, sir, I just don't feel it anymore. And yet I was married to this for a long time and I loved it, but I don't feel that anymore. And I feel I'd be a liability. And he said, you know what, I'm not going to fight you on that. If that's how you feel. I totally agree. And it doesn't take away from anything you've done up until now, but I get why you want to get out. And they let me go. 
so yeah, that was kind of how my career ended. It ended on a good note. Certainly didn't end with the fanfare. I, th- I, I thought I was a lifetime guy. I thought I was 30 years or 35 years until you kicked me out the door. But I'm glad now I got out. And I'm equally as glad that I was in for the 17 years I was in. I'm, I'm proud of that, but I'm equally happy that I got out when I did. When you first joined, the Army gave you that family you were lacking at the time, but whilst being married to that job, you started your own family and you got to build that family. And the Kokoda stuff we were talking about before, that ties into your future somewhat post-Army. One of your daughters, of course, is Alyssa Azar, a high achiever in her own right. She walked the Kokoda track at age eight did Everest Base Camp and Mount Kilimanjaro as a teenager, and is the youngest Australian to summit Mount Everest at 19 years of age, and she did it again from the other side at 21. How did that start? I mean, what lessons from the military do you think influenced your parenting, and what have you passed on to her? If I look back at all of my, who I am as a human, it all came from my military background, because that, right, that was my family. That was, I didn't really have that family unit growing up, and that was my influence. So it taught me a lot of things. One thing I enjoyed about the Army in hindsight is they're tough. They're tough on you go into a course and you have to pass that course. There's no, oh, you're close enough so we'll lower the pass mark. That didn't exist. I did subject one for corporal, infantry commander course, you know, that all corps do. And there's 76 people on the course and you got ranked from number one to number 76. So you knew exactly where you fitted in. There was no mollycoddling people around the fact that, okay, you passed, everyone passed. And there's one student of merit, but everyone else passed. It was like, you passed, but you're number 76 out of 76. So you knew that you're kind of like, oh, literally the last person on this course or wherever you fitted in. I liked that. And what that taught me is that if you want to achieve something, you have to do the work. And so I was a nature over nurture guy. I wasn't someone that said no to my kids about anything, but I never cleared the way for them on anything. Now, I didn't care if they want to be a doctor or a hairdresser or they want to climb Mount Everest. You come to me and want to do something. And with Alyssa, she was always kind of different to the other kids. And she was always more active and had very driven and very individual and very focused from a young age. And at six years old, she said, I want to do Kokoda because I'd done a couple of Kokodas. I said, no, you're too too young and you're too small at this stage because no one that young had done it. It was still relatively unknown. And she just harassed me and didn't give up on it. And we'd bushwalk every weekend or every second weekend. We'd do overnighters. We'd do nine hours. We'd do, and she was always doing it. I came back from one Kokoda trip and I thought, there's nothing in this that she's not currently doing on weekends. I mean, it's tougher, but, and it's putting it together. So I just said to her, all right, I'll let you go, but I'm going to set your training program. It's going to be three days a week and it's going to be for 12 months because being younger, she needed to train a lot longer than most. And if you skip a single training session, you won't go. Now, I wasn't trying to stop her going, but I wanted her to understand there's a commitment you have to make first. You have to do that work. No one can do it for you. And if you if you skip any step in that, then that's a decision you made. There's a consequence of that. And the army definitely teaches you that, that there's a consequence to every action that you take. And as a result, she never missed a session. She goes to Kokoda. She's then been able to employ that system to everything she's ever done since. And so at 14, when she first said to me, I want to climb Mount Everest, there was no part of me that thought, well, you can't do that because one, I'm not the authority on Mount Everest. I don't know Mount Everest. I'd never climbed it. And so I just said to her, okay, well, we don't know what that looks like. So let's go and research what it takes, what it looks like. We didn't know that she'd be the youngest Australian or anything. That didn't matter to her or to me and it still doesn't. But we just went and mapped out, well, what does it look like? And then what work do you need to do and what can I do? And what I can do is moral support. I can be your safety net and your support network, which is, again, what the Army provides. It provides support, backup network. And when you're out there, you're out there with yourself or your mates, you're all just got to do your job. And then what she can do is the physical preparation, the mental preparation, 
information. And then what I can do is help fundraise, raise awareness, do all the stuff that I needed to do. And that culminated in a couple of missed attempts on Everest, as in natural disasters stopped her summiting. And then eventually on the third attempt, she gets to summit. So what are the lessons that come out of the military in that? The lessons are around resilience, around not giving up on your goals. Like with us, if we get a mission and the mission isn't achieved, it's not like the army goes, cool, we didn't need that anyway. No, we've got to work out another way to achieve that mission because it has to be achieved. So you don't just give up on it. So I think it taught all of those skills, but it also, it's this positive environment of saying, yeah, you can do it if you do the work. The army doesn't, it's tough, but it doesn't stop. It wants you to achieve stuff and it wants to give you the tools. And what, as a young person first joining, you might view as bastardization, even the toughness, you realize is actually setting you up. It's layering all these things that you're going to need over time. Like I said earlier, that when you get on a deployment, you've got this depth of experiences and resilience that you've been built up through a process of time. So that the first attempt on Everest where they were allowed to climb fully on the mountain where the weather was clear where there was no obstruction other than her physicality and her mindset she was able to do what she set out to do because she'd done all the work and I think that that's what the military had always taught me if you do the work and you stick to the process you'll eventually achieve the goal but we can't do the work for you and so that's how I've approached parenting to an outsider, they might even think you're being tough as a parent at times because if she or any of my kids did something that wasn't good enough, we didn't go, okay, that's all right, maybe you'll get it next time. We kind of said, well, did you put everything into it? We talked about that. And I'll be honest, there's probably no one tougher on themselves than she is. Like she's way tougher on herself than I am. And that's why she's been able to achieve the things that she's been able to achieve. And it was the same for me in my military career. Like no one gave me anything. You had to go out and achieve it. So that when I did that subject one course, I finished first. Like out of 76 people, I came number one on that course, student of merit. And I wasn't an infantry soldier at the time. And I've got some infantry mates who were kind of like, wow, but I had been an infantry soldier, but I was a medic. And it was kind of weird that a medic would top this more of an infantry style course but it's just because I gave everything to the process I every lesson I taught every session I did I treated it like it mattered and I feel like Alyssa did that as well through all of her processes, through her training, through the people she surrounded herself with. She was working with ex-SAS soldiers and other people. They were all giving her the same thing. No one said to her, you're too young, you're too small, you don't know what you're doing. They were just saying, if you're willing to do the work, it doesn't matter if you're 14 or 40. If you're willing to do the work, you can have the gravy at the end of that, the goal. There is more to go with Glenn, including his work today with veterans with PTSD. But first, I also briefly spoke with Glenn's daughter, Alyssa to get her perspective on Glenn's military service. Alyssa Azar, welcome to Life on the Line. Thank you. What are some of your earlier childhood memories of your father being in the army, Alyssa? Yeah, I have a a lot of good memories um, from my dad sort of being in the army. I mean, I was really quite young when both my parents were in, so sort of something that I was just always around. I remember my dad being deployed only briefly because I was very young at the time. I was probably about four years old around then. But I do remember him being posted out at the uh, Oki Army Base. And because of that, I grew up in Toowoomba. Yeah, I have a lot of memories out there. My older sister and I used to hang out at the Army Base a lot um, because both my parents were quite young and and working out there. So um, yeah, I was always just sort of around it. And stuff like Anzac Days or studying history at school, when you're looking at the legacy of that older history and the importance it is in the Australian culture, both your parents in uniform today. How did you sort of marry up those two notions of there's this big epic thing we celebrate once or twice a year culturally as a nation and then my parents are sort of part of that, the modern version of that today? Yeah, it's interesting. I think I became more aware of it when I crossed the Kokoda track. 
obviously you learn about history and sort of Anzac Day obviously in school and it is celebrated in our culture and so yeah that's something I was always very proud of but for me both my parents being in uniform was very normal as well so I didn't really know any different but I think I realized the bigger picture and what they were part of when I crossed the Dakota track so in August of 2005 I got the opportunity to do that with my dad and yeah getting to actually be on the ground where a lot of Australian military history happened understanding what the VC means getting to see a lot of those iconic places firsthand and something that my dad's very passionate about when doing Kokoda is really telling the stories because otherwise, you know, you can go for a walk anywhere, but to not tell those stories and that history, yeah, you're missing out on the experience. So I felt very fortunate to yeah get to experience some of that and that gave me a greater understanding, particularly with the services and seeing the Mana War Cemetery. Um, I think that's when, for me, I really understood what my parents were part of. Glenn told me about the training program and expectations he set for you for your first Kokoda trek you just mentioned, which you completed at eight years old. In a nutshell, how do you think his military background influenced not just his approach to your goal, but the discipline and goal setting skills you subsequently built for yourself? Yeah, look, in hindsight, I think it was a huge part of really any success um, as a climber in trekking that I've had. I think the way that my dad raised me had huge influence on me. I look back now and again, to me, it was relatively normal, but there were definitely high expectations and high standards. But, you know, I was quite an ambitious and independent kid. So I really loved that. I loved taking that in my stride and I always had big goals. And he was someone who was like, okay, yeah, I support you, but then helped me put that process in place to make it happen. But certainly there was sort of a a culture of work ethic in our family. I remember my parents, never really cared what we did. We never had a discussion around what career you would have or anything like that. They wanted us to be our own people and to have the room to find out who that was. But I just remember from a really young age, it was an absolute non-negotiable that we learned the value of having a work ethic and being disciplined. And that really sort of was hammered home for me when I was training for Kokoda. So I got so much just out of the training process because there was that, yeah, we're going to set the goal and set that standard. But he made it clear that I'm not responsible for you achieving that goal. I will help put all the things in place, but you're the one that's got to get up and do the training. You're the one that's got to put the work in. And I think that really set me up for anything that I wanted to do after that, to have those tools in place. Kokoda obviously has that great historical importance and you're connecting that Anzac legend, mythology, ideology with that modern reality. As you began to chase the dream of summiting Mount Everest, I believe you also then sought out training with other military veterans. Tell me about that. I'd done a few treks. I'd come back from Mount Kilimanjaro, which I summited when I was 14. And it was around that time that I started to really think about having a serious crack at Everest. It's sort of been a dream in the back of my mind since I heard about the world's highest mountain. And like a lot of climbers, there's kind of that aura to it that draws you there. And so that's when it started to really go, okay, I might set this as a goal, which I did. And again, I worked with my dad on, you know, I went to him and said, this is what I want to do. And he said, all right, but you know, we need to look at all the things that could go wrong. We need to look at what skills you need. Same sort of process that we did with Kokoda. We laid out, all right, what will it entail? And are you willing to put yourself through that? But yeah, absolutely. I had a few veterans that I worked with in particular, one guy that my dad knew, which was um, Keith Fennell. So he's an ex-SAS soldier. And that was probably one of the most valuable sort of training camps that I did in my lead up to Everest, because it 
became really apparent really quickly that you can have the physical side, which you need, and you can have the skill set. But if you can't bring that together with the right mindset as a climber, you're not going to get anywhere near the summit. And so I realized how important it was to work on that aspect as well. And so I, I went down to Sydney when I was probably 16, 17, and I'd been training physically for Everest for a couple of years. Um, and I was sort of in my final six months of training before my first attempt. Got to work with him and I just think it was an incredible experience to sort of understand his mindset. He gave me a lot of pretty amazing strategies to deal with the unknown. And you know, I needed someone who, again, I didn't just need a coach who would train me physically. I needed someone who understood how to manage your emotions and your mindset when it could be a potential life and death situation. And so he's become sort of a, a mentor of mine throughout the years. And I definitely credit him with helping me, you know, get to Everest. Um, but I did a few other training camps as well. One over at the Mill Gym, Perth. And that was amazing as well. It was, uh, I remember my first day there, how nervous I was. And uh, you walk in and there's a sign on the door that says, if uh, you're not nervous before you train, you're not training hard enough. And I remember that was the exact type of environment I needed to be in. And that's something that definitely my dad suggested. We sort of looked around at, you know, who do you need to be around? What environment do you need to be in? The standard has to be so much higher than anything you've done before. And so, yeah, I really immersed myself in those environments. And I think they were huge for developing the mindset to go and climb Everest. Yeah, I know Nick Caldwell and they certainly take it seriously. Yes. <laughs> I think you'd be the army's dream recruit as an infantry soldier just for your love of climbing and obviously the discipline mindset. Were you ever tempted to put on the cams yourself? Yeah, look, I was very tempted. Something that I did look at, I think if I hadn't have been a climber, I probably would have gone into the army. In fact, I remember I wasn't the biggest fan of high school. I struggled to, I guess, just stay disciplined at that one thing. Um, I was always very distracted and kind of just wanted to get out into the world. And I'd had a lot of pretty amazing experiences by then already. So I, I did find it tough. But um, I remember saying to my mum, what, what if I finish grade 10 and then I go and join the army? Because I just wanted to get out into it. So it was definitely an option on the table for me. It just didn't end up aligning because of climbing and then a lot of opportunities that came off the back of that. But yeah, it was definitely on the cards for me. And I think it's what I would have done. I think I, uh, I knew I always needed some sort of a physical job and I like being challenged mentally and physically. Besides all the insane amount of climbs you've achieved and now co-running adventure professionals with your dad, you are also a public speaker like your dad. Given how much you're used to sharing your story and hearing your father share his story, what's the number one lesson you think listeners should take away from hearing Glenn's story today? Oh, look, I think there's a lot that can be taken away from it. I definitely think I'm proud and impressed by his transition out of the army. I think um, certainly his career was very impressive. I think definitely what's always inspired me is the level of effort he brings to literally everything he does. It's not like, oh, okay, this is important. So I'll actually put some effort in literally across the board in everything he's ever done since I can remember. It's always been, you give a hundred percent to each task in front of you. And that's something that I took on board. So I think the number one thing I've always respected about him and about both my parents is their work ethic and their discipline. That's something to me that literally no matter what you do is always going to be useful. But yeah, I definitely think just his attitude towards anything that he does. And I think that's why he's been able to go from one career and be successful at it and transition out and also be successful in other areas such as business and public speaking. Alyssa, thank you for your time today. Thank you. Back to the chat with Glenn. You do a lot of coaching these days, Glenn, and I know work with veterans with PTSD. 
Tell me more about that and what you've observed about transition out of uniform and the challenges some soldiers face recalibrating their mindset when leaving the service. Yeah, so I've done a lot of work, particularly through Mates for Mates. So I lead Kokoda trips for them and I have done for some time and I stay connected to a lot of the guys and girls. I've worked with everyone from Vietnam vets right through obviously to the Afghan. We started out mostly working with Afghan vets. I've worked with parents and spouses of guys that were killed in Afghan. And so we're working with a broader network, not just directly the veterans. Through that, I've ended up coaching a lot of them outside of that. I've learned a lot of things. I've learned that a lot of our problems that we have, if people have problems getting out of the military, because I feel like I've transitioned really well through my business life and through what I'm able to do. And the reason that's been is because when people get out, it's not so much post-traumatic stress, so PTSD, whilst we're all termed with that, a lot of it's not a traumatic event that causes a problem. It's the loss of identity. It's the loss of family because, you know, I love the army, but when you get out, the army doesn't love you back. I know for me, when I got out, there was no like a six month or a 12 month check-in. There was no, hey, how are you going, mate? How have you fallen back into normal life? Even after 17 years, it was kind of like, okay, thanks, mate. See ya. There was a handshake on the day I left and I never heard from them again. Other than, you know, once a year I'd get emergency reserve would contact me just to update details. And they only do that for the first five years. But otherwise, there was no one that ever checked in on you. So I think there's a loss of identity. There's also, it's really intense while you're in the military, particularly for all these guys that have done regular deployments. And I've got mates that have done seven or eight deployments through East Timor, Iraq and Afghanistan. So when you get out, there can be almost a feeling of, oh, so everything I did doesn't matter because I don't hear from you. So it's like I didn't matter because the world just moves on. So I think it's loss of identity, loss of mateship. They start to isolate. A lot of veterans, I always say soldiers, but this is for all three services. I say soldiers because that's what I was, but a lot of soldiers think that we have really good self-discipline. That's actually not true. What veterans have and what soldiers in my experience have is really good discipline, which is when I'm told where to be and when to be there, I'll be there and I'll be there early. When I'm told to do a task, I'll do it to the best of my ability. I'll work as hard as I can and I'll overcome any obstacle to achieve that thing. So when we get home and we don't have someone telling us what to do or or giving us directive, self-discipline is being able to do those things on your own. We tend to fall into this habit of no one's telling me what to do anymore is the first thing. We start to get out of bed later. We start to stop physical activity. We start to drink more because there's no one to tell me I can't. Not only that, we actively reject people telling us what to do because I spent 10, 15, 20 years being told what to do. So you know what? No one's going to tell me what to do right now. So that says to me, we actually lack self-discipline but we have really good discipline. So we need to put systems and processes around ourselves as in support networks and mates. And we need to make commitments to a regular routine to be where we say we're gonna be because that's what we did in the military. And that's the bit that we actually enjoyed. So the biggest transition is just loss of identity, feeling like what we did didn't matter because we're not getting regular feedback anymore. And that's where organizations like Soldier On and Mates for Mates and Open Arms, there's a whole heap of them. They are able to at least offer us some feedback that what we did did matter. And that matters to us. We need to feel like we go through some really tough things. We give up so much. We don't cry about that because we elect to do that. But if you get out and feel like that didn't matter to anyone, that's really tough. And so finding ways of just knowing that it did matter and reconnecting and what particularly what the Kokoda track has taught me and has allowed me to teach other soldiers is when we get out, a lot of blokes, I say all girls, guys and girls, isolate and they isolate themselves from the world. And yet that's the total opposite to what we had in the military where we were surrounded by people. When you isolate, you start to feel like you're the only one that feels this way. You feel like everyone else is handling themselves well except me. And so when I take them on Kokoda, 
I'm trying to reconnect them with the past to say, hey, we're not the only ones that have been through this. You're not the only one who's been through this. Neither am I, neither are we. This has been happening since, you know, the First World War, the Second World War and so on. So I'm reconnecting them with our military history, inserting into that narrative that you are a part of our current military history and will be going forward and that what you did mattered. You did what you were asked to do when you were asked to do it and that mattered, as did these guys. But what also matters is that we reinsert ourselves into life and we have an identity post all of this. I don't want to be telling a Timor story, which is 20 years ago. Timor has just gone past their 20-year anniversary. I don't want to be telling a Timor story or fighting about what happened in Bougainville and Timor in 20, 30, and 40 years' time. If there's no other story about what I've done with my life, then that has to be on me. So we have to learn to own that. And an example I would use is I'm in a private, I'm numerous private Facebook groups for soldiers and veterans, but there's one around Timor, particularly around Interfet. And there were guys from two different infantry battalions, 20 years later, still arguing with who did the better work over there and not arguing in a friendly banter way, but like literally getting really aggressive and angry about who was the better battalion out of these two battalions. And I'm thinking, guys, it was 20 years ago. Like if that's still your identity now is what you did 20 years ago and whether you did it better than the other guy, that's part of the problem. And if I can help, these guys and girls recognize that we can start to deal with it, but we can't deal with problems we don't recognize. We can't deal with anything that we're not willing to admit to. The other side of that coin is by offering these services, it's helped me deal with my stuff because there is no doubt I came home with baggage. I think we all do. Being a medic when I came home, I was able to actively avoid a lot of the psychological interviews that are put in place to protect us. Now, it's a more stringent setup now, but back when we're coming back from Timor and in, even in fact Bougainville, a lot of those psychological assessments were kind of new. They were just starting to get their hands around or their heads around, I should say, how we look after soldiers when they come home and still want to be soldiers. A lot of soldiers, and I don't know if this has changed in the 10 years since I got out, but we don't want to admit we've got a, a mental health issue. We've all got mental health, right? So mental health is something we all have, whether it's positive or negative, we all have it. It's like physical health. We've all got it. The idea of admitting that you might be mentally struggling with something could mean in our minds and probably realistically back then that your career could be stunted. Like, oh, this guy's got a problem. So for me, maybe he's not going to get promoted. So I didn't want to do that. And I knew I was having a few issues dealing with some stuff. So I just avoided the system. Now, I remember there was a psych again out at Oki who said, hey, I'm looking at this thing. You've been home for a few years from Timor and you haven't filled out this assessment. And everyone I knew who filled out that assessment was diagnosed with a problem and had to spend eight weeks doing this course, which is probably a good thing. But back then I was like, I don't want to be diagnosed with a problem because I still want to get promoted. I've just finished this or nearly finished this nursing degree. I've just passed my officer selection i'm about to become an officer i don't want that to stop so i just avoided all of that and that's the other problem we avoid the things that can help us i've seen and know of medics who remove stuff out of their medical documents so that it's not there but now 20 years later if they needed to recall back on that information they took it out just for the promotion's sake so there's all these ways we don't deal with stuff and i know i'm someone that actively didn't deal with it but when you learn to help other people you inadvertently are helping yourself so much more than you know you learn to deal with your other your own stuff. You learn to see things from different perspectives. I've learned so much, particularly in the last five years of dealing with some amazing stories, some big stories that people in the veteran community would have absolutely heard about. I've dealt with those guys and taken them over to Kokoda and seen them make a change. I took a guy over, I've taken so many over, but I took this one guy over, I remember we did a service up on Brigade Hill, which is about halfway along the Kokoda track for us. And when we came down, he said to me, I felt something lift off my shoulders then. And I said, what do you mean? He said, like, I've had this heaviness with me since I got back from Afghan and I felt it lift. And every nine to sort of 
14 months, really sort of randomly, he'll still send, we're not mates or anything, but he'll send me a message on Facebook or somehow and just say to me, that changed my life, that experience on Kokoda. And I think that's pretty cool to be able to have that gateway to be able to teach people lessons that are helpful to them. So I take trekking Kokoda and leading people on Kokoda trips so much more importantly than just leading people on tough physical trek with a backpack on because let's be honest, veterans have done that most of their careers. So it's got to be more than that. The other thing I will say is that this narrative that veterans come home and we've all got problems is not true. It's 100% not true. You get to choose how you're going to deal with things, absolutely, who you're going to surround yourself with. If you want to be trapped in that old story, you can do that and almost no one can help you out of it. But if you want help, there's so much help available today that wasn't available 10 years ago and 20 years ago, so much that if you want it and you reach out for it, it is there for you in so many different levels. But there are some people that are so attached to that story, that person they were, that they're dragging it like an anchor through into the rest of the world with them. Now, I'm not saying forget who you were and don't be proud of what you've done. But what I'm saying is don't let it be an anchor. Be proud of it. Think about the lessons you've got from it. But how can that serve you and people around you today? There are so many positives to what we did as veterans, to what we experienced. You know, through this current sort of coronavirus type thing, we've dealt with this isolation for years. We've dealt with people telling us what to do, having restrictions on on our ability to move when we're on deployments. We've dealt with all that stuff. So that's a strength that we have rather than viewing it as a problem. You get to choose that narrative. And the sooner people can realize that, the better they come out of it. I know guys that have come out of really big deployments, really big instances with no problems at all. And then they almost feel guilty because people go, you should have a problem because of what you went through. Well, no, you don't have to. Like You all get to deal with this in the way that you see fit, but you do have to deal with it one way or the other. That's what I've learned through dealing for years with veterans and seeing so many transition really well, even after years of feeling like they were never going to let go of this thing and all of a sudden letting go of it. It's been amazing. We are masters of our own mindset. 100%. Glenn, tell me a bit about Adventure Professionals and your podcast. Yeah, so I do a few things now, but when I got out, so I got out in 2009, in February of 2010, I started a business called Adventure Professionals and uh, pretty basic, we lead people on adventures and we are professionals. So we're not just hackers who do this on a weekend. I don't just book trips for people and then send you off. We're not a tour company. It does what it says on the tin, yeah. It literally is what it says we are. And and so I lead people on adventures all around the world. So I'll actively do uh, nine Kokodas a year on average. I've done 79 Kokoda track crossings. I'll do Everest Base Camp every couple of years. I'll do Mount Kilimanjaro every year or two. I do mountain climbs in Russia. I go dog sledding up in the Yukon. I do Aussie 10 Peaks. We do a lot of corporate work where they'll give us people to take away because it is my belief that adventure is the best personal development in the world. Who you are at the start of an adventure versus who you are at the end when adventures are done well are different people. In the military, I was qualified as an adventure training leader. So we would take people out on adventures Now, in my early days, adventure training was basically a week or two week fishing trips where people were, you know, having beers and it was kind of a relaxation. And then we kind of went, well, that's that's not really achieving anything. We realized that adventure needs to challenge people and you need to challenge people in a group environment. So you're looking for something like a Kokoda that might be really physically demanding on some people and other people might find it physically easy, but might find it emotionally demanding when you're talking about the history of what happened over there. So it's quite an amazing story. So you're looking for ways to challenge people, letting them overcome a fear or a doubt of some sort. And I've had people who struggle in the first two or three days ago, I'm not up for this. I don't know that I can get through this. And to see the look on their face when they finish Kokoda and walk through those archways, I've seen some of the toughest guys and girls you could ever meet break down and cry at different points. 
I've got some of the hardest mates that I know in the SAS who've cried at points along the Kokoda track, whose partners have said, I've never seen him cry. Because when you do that job well and when you teach the history, the physicality is nothing to this guy. But learning the stories and the history and then connecting it with the past, like it's it's amazing. And I now get to do a lot of that work corporately. Now, if people Google us, like Alyssa and myself, because we own this company together, we are adventurers. We're not people who do this as a business to try and make money, although that's, of course, that's what we do. No, it's your passion as well. We are adventurers. That's literally who we are. So between us, like Alyssa's done nine Kokodas and she's only 23 years of age. She's climbed Mount Everest twice. She's climbed the highest mountains in Russia and South America. She's climbed other mountains in Nepal. She's been traveling on her own since the age of 15, you know, climbing a lot of these peaks on her own. She climbed Everest both times on her own. Why? Because we're not a wealthy family. We didn't have the money to do both of us to go over. So only one of us went over. If I'm going to Kokoda and one of my medics or someone, I would take two staff members, can't go, I could say to her today, hey, someone can't go, do you want to come to Kokoda tomorrow? And she'll go, untrained, underprepared. I mean, when I say untrained, we're always training, but she can literally, like we as soldiers can do, throw all her gear in a backpack and make do. And she's done that for me on numerous occasions. So this is literally who we are. So not only do I get to lead veterans on these trips, I get to lead people from everyday walks of life. I do trips for other charities. I do trips for companies where it helps them bond together. It's literally the most amazing thing ever. And people say to me, you've got the best job in the world. And I don't disagree. And, and I feel like we all should feel that way about our job, whatever it is. But I created this. And again, any veterans out there listening, you can literally, with this, if you sit down and map out the skills and the mindsets that you learn in the military, you can literally create whatever you want because you have that strength in you. You were given that strength in the military. And yes, you might have had some challenging times. We all did. But if you truly look at all the strengths that you gain, there's so much more than most people could possibly gain in that same time frame. What I mean is if you do 10 years in the military, you learn so much resilience and strength and the ability to overcome challenges and to work as a team and to lead people in 10 years that most people in a corporate job just couldn't learn. They don't have the experiential learning. They haven't been out there and done it. You can learn it in a book, but to go out and do it. So I'm studying psychology at the moment, not to be a psychologist. I'm doing a degree. I won't do the final year, which is for, to be a clinical psychologist. I'll just do the parts up to that because I want it to help me with my coaching, with my podcast, which is called the Building Better Humans Project. Because that's my passion is to build better humans. And I realized I, you don't want to build a better football player, a better business owner, a better manager, a better mum or dad. You want to build better humans because that makes them better in all those aspects. So I just use all the skill sets I've learned over the years to teach people some of the best lessons I've ever learned. And the psychology degree gives me the education to back up what I've experientially learned. I've been out and experienced and I've seen in action. So I'm not telling people, hey, this is a theory that I've got, or here's three steps to be the best version of you. I'm just saying these are things that Alyssa and I have actually used to goal set or to achieve a dream or to, you know, I've literally achieved more in my lifetime than I'm entitled to. I come from a fairly low socioeconomic family, working class, despite leaving home early and having some toughness, we were always fed, we were always looked after, but we weren't wealthy. You know, Christmas, you know, was Christmas and I've got no right to achieve the things I've achieved. And I give the army a, a huge prop for giving me the ability to achieve it. And everyone out there listening in the veteran community, you have that too. I'm not special. I'm literally not special. We all have it. It's just whether you tap into it or not. And that's what Adventure Professionals has done. We've tapped into that. That's what Building Better Humans Project does. We've tapped into that. I run a gym, our own gym in Brisbane, and you know the podcast and the mindset and the coaching, it is literally all lessons learned from the military applied into real-time experiences that people understand in their own lives. And we are well sought after as a result. 
I've got so much coaching work through Zoom sessions through the whole COVID thing. I've got a, a call tonight after we finish this chat where I've got 200 people from one company on a Zoom call where I'm talking to them about resilience. Now, where did I learn about that? I learned about it in the military and I'm telling them real-time stories. The way we learn as humans is through other people's stories. That's why podcasts are so interesting. So I can teach them about resilience. I can give them steps to resilience. And every one of those steps, I can apply a story to from my life or from Melissa's life with climbing mountains that makes it, okay, I can understand how that works. It's amazing. Glenn, talking with you is energizing. Hearing your story is inspiring. And you say you're not special, but I think you've achieved a lot of special things in your life. Thank you for sharing your many insights and for coming on the show. Thanks, man. It's been an absolute pleasure. And uh, like, you know, literally all I ever want to do is inspire people. I'm naturally fairly excited by life. So, uh, and I can be a bit wordy, but, you know, I just think we've all got a story to tell and I like to tell it. Look away, look away, away from their lies. Look away, look away, and curb your desires. Look away, look away. More of that music in just a moment. Stick around. My thanks to Glenn and Alyssa Azar for coming on Life on the Line. Check out the Building Better Humans Project podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Also look up Glenn and Alyssa on Instagram and Alyssa Azar's public Facebook page. In this chat with Glenn, I referenced a Vietnam War SAS veteran who later served in the Australian Federal Police in Timor. For that story, jump back to Season 2, 2018 and listen to Thomas Kay's insightful interview with that veteran in... Number 18, Don Barnby, Volume 1. Listening for enemy, looking for enemy signs and all this sort of stuff, not knowing what's around the next tree, around the next bend. And Volume 2. It's still raw with me, what happened up there, because we're unarmed and the atrocities that were going on were, were you know, horrendous, right up to murder and rape and all that sort of stuff, and it was just horrendous. For a naval perspective on the Bougainville and Timor deployments, listen to number 17, Dave Stafford Finney, for Angus Horden's conversation with a marine technician and veteran of HMAS Tobruk. We were shooting 50 cows within what looked like 50 centimetres of their bridge. You know, they were actually shooting across the bow. In my chat with Alyssa, she mentioned the Mill Gym. For more on the Mill Gym, listen to Thomas Kay's interview with an SAS veteran in Season 3, number 60, Nick Caldwell. But if you're there because you want to fight war at the tip of the spear and you want to be thrown into the hardest, most arduous tasks possible, then you're in the unit for the right reasons. And for even more on Timor, check out another interview by Thomas Kay. In Season 3, number 48, Tamara Sloper-Harding. We were flying out in a helicopter to meet with some local villagers, some of the chiefs, and I don't even remember the name of the village, but we had engine failure and had to make an emergency landing. Follow this podcast at Life on the Line Podcast on Facebook and Instagram and at LOTL Pod on Twitter. Our website is www.lifeonthelinepodcast.com and you can email us at podcast at lifeonthelinepodcast.com. Life on the Line is brought to you by Thistle Productions, artwork by Big Cat Design, theme music by Dan Van Werkhoven, closing music, Look Away by SAS original rock band, The Externals. Thanks for listening, and lest we forget. Look away, look away, humble your eyes. Look away, look away, shelter your child. Look away, look away, save your rights. Look away, look away, away from the lights.
Look away, look away, away from their lies. Look away, look away, and curb your desires. Look away, look away, they're just parasites. Look away, look away, it's our money, your allies. Who made you boss? You bastard. You're taking everything we own in spite. Who put you in charge, you wankers? Does anybody really give a shite? Stick your money up your asses. Run away, run away, into the night. Run away, run away, don't struggle, don't fight. Run away, run away, run for your lives. Run away, run away. Who made you boss, you bastard? You're taking everything we own in spite Who put you in charge, you wankers? Does anybody really give a shite? Stick your money up, your asses Your old bastard Look away, look away, run away, 